Well, uh, good morning. Good to see you all this morning. Let me do a little family business here before we dive into the Word. First off, I think, uh, if you don't know Scott, I think it was an extraordinarily uh, funny moment when he said the Word and coffee, because there's nobody that's more committed to the Word I know than Scott, although he is pretty committed to coffee too. So, um, you know, it's good for us to maintain a sense of, of humor. God's Word is incredibly important, but life is you know, life is to be enjoyed, and coffee is an important thing. So I just want to underscore the things that were said earlier. If, if you're looking for a place to serve, there's lots of places to do that. It's how we serve as a family, as we serve each other. And this only works if we are willing to do that. And so I would just encourage you, you don't have to have been here a long time. You don't have to have uh, got a lot of background. You can just dive right in. You may say, well, I want more than one week a month. <laughs> Great. Praise God. We want more than one week a month for you, too. There's, there's lots of opportunities. So that's one thing. Number two, um, if you drive a silver Toyota Highlander license plate 6SQR138, uh, your engine is running, and so you may want to go out and turn that off. Um, I'm not sure if that's like, I don't know how the sermon's going to go. I want to make a hasty getaway. Um, <laughs> It's, well, you know, I was also going to say, um, this, season, <laughs> this season has done a number on a lot of us. So, um, yeah, it, let's, just, let's just keep a sense of humor and keep moving forward. Yeah, see, I, you know, I have more and more of those myself, Dave. Uh, third thing I want to say, uh, with a sense of humor and a sense of seriousness, uh, you guys know that the, you know, the... the um, virus is kicking up. I see more people wearing masks. I encourage you to do that if you, if you want to do that. I encourage all of us to, whatever we do, do it very wisely. We're not to be ruled by rules. We're not to be ruled by freedom. We're to be ruled by love. And so we want to be very careful with each other, and I just encourage you to continue to be sensitive to that. I know quite a few people who have COVID right now. I took a test earlier this week uh, I'm, I'm fully vaccinated because I don't want to pass it on to anyone. I'm not a high-risk person, and yet I was exposed to somebody. I need to find out so that I don't expose somebody else. And so as we navigate these strange times, as a church family, let's just be a loving family, and you do whatever makes the most sense for you in a way that is loving to other people. That's, that's what we would encourage you to do. Um, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open to John chapter 16. And uh, we will dive in there. I want to pray one more time because I do want to pray. There's a lot of hurting people, a lot of struggling uh, people, a lot of things that are going difficult right now for some. So I want to kind of have a more uh, pastoral prayer. Nate's already prayed for uh, our worship and uh, the time in the sermon. But I do want to also offer a pastoral prayer, and then we'll dive into the message itself. So would you pray with me? Lord, um, we're grateful. We're grateful to be here. We're grateful to be part of your family. We're grateful that even in the midst of um, crazy life, crazy world, you're always with us. Lord, we need each other to help each other, to encourage each other along, to lift each other up, to spur each other to love and good deeds. We need all of those things. We need to be continually upholding one another in prayer as well. And, and Lord, we want to do that right now. We know there's uh, families who have just suffered severely over these last weeks and months uh, through loss, through hardship, uh, some arising out of the, the, 
virus that we're facing and some arising out of complications from that and some arising from completely different areas, but it's a hard season. And so we ask for your grace and your mercy and we ask that you help us to continue to have um, a hope in you and a trust in you and a love for others that will sustain and encourage and um, that you can use to make a difference in all of our lives and in this world. Pray that as we dive into the word that you would in fact really shape us, really encourage us, really challenge us, really mold us. Uh, we offer this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I thought I would start by uh, confessing a few little quirky things. I don't know why I put my timer down there because I can't see it. So speaking of senior minutes, lives, whatever, I don't know. I wouldn't do all of this on, on the live stream because that would be confusing. So you get the slightly goofier version of me. Um, I'll confess a few, uh, what I would call quirks. Have you ever noticed how when uh, you describe something that's a little bit off and it's you, you know, it's me, it's probably a quirk. If it's you, maybe it's a challenge, and if it's him or her, they're messed up, right? So this is about me, so it's a quirk, right? Um, uh, one of my quirks is I really struggle with and have a hard time with, I have a love-hate relationship with navigators. Um, you know, on your phone or in your car. Um, the, you know, the idea of turn-by-turn turn guidance is, is wonderful, except when it's not, and then it's horrible. And I've had all kinds of experiences with navigators. Largely, they're useful, but sometimes they just drive you crazy. Like the time Dave and I were in a, a back east, and we were trying to find a grocery store, and we, we punched it in the navigator, and we wound up in a different state. And you may ask, why didn't you just turn around and go back? You, you weren't on the road the navigator took us on. It was crazy. It was totally off. And that's supposed to be helpful. More recently, my daughter, who's uh, starting teaching students next, uh, well, tomorrow, uh, in her, she was getting her classroom set up, and she was at one of the schools in La Habra District picking up something to take to the school where her classroom is, and she called and said, Dad, uh, if you have a few minutes, could you grab Mom's car and come over and help me because I can't fit this into my car. It sure can't fit it in my car. Um, but, you know, the SUV, let's, let's throw it in there. So, great, what school are you at? I'm not real familiar with the district. So she said, I'll send you the address. I punched it into the navigator, and I try to get there. And I'm driving up the street towards where the school's supposed to be, and it says, turn left. I can't turn left. There's a shopping center there. So I keep going, and it says, now turn left, and it's trying to send me into a, a gated community. It's like, this thing is worthless. So I turn around, I do a U-turn, and of course, as I go back by the gated community, now it says, turn right. And I'm not going to do that, because they won't let me in there. And then I go to the shopping center, and it says, turn right. And I'm thinking, well, maybe it knows something I don't. So I turn into the shopping center, and it sends me down the backside by all of the dumpsters and the old cardboard and stuff, and I dead end at a fence, and it says, you have arrived. And sure enough, there's the school, and I'm 150 yards from the building across the playground with an eight-foot fence between me and where my daughter needs me to be. And I'm like, ah, this navigator is not helpful. It's close, but not quite right. Sometimes it's actually right, but not helpful. Like, I don't know if this has ever been trouble for you, but it'll say, take exit 43. It never says that until you're right on top of it. Then it'll say exit 43. It'll say Lincoln. It'll say Maine. It'll say first. It'll have all those for miles and miles and miles. And then 100 yards before, it'll say exit 43. And I'm in traffic. Take exit 43 or take a right turn in 300 feet. And that's really not easy to do 
when you're in the second lane over and, and it's, there's a lot of traffic. It's just, it's just crazy. My favorite, though, is when it says head east. Like, the reason I'm using a navigator is because I don't know where I am. Can you, can you use directions right and left? Head east. I'm sorry, I didn't bring my sextant. I can't take an angle on the sun. And I'm not going to wait around until nighttime to see when the stars are so I can head east. And you could say, well, it's on the little map that's on the thing. The point of it giving me vocal voice turn by turn is I don't have to look at the map and crash my car. And, and so navigators really sometimes annoy me. They frustrate me. And so if... If you ask David, she'll, she'll confirm all of this and say what I usually like to do is before we're going to go anywhere, I want to look at it. Then the turn-by-turn is helpful. But I need to have a map in my own mind, right? I don't want to just entrust myself to now this, now that, now that, because, yeah, where am I going? How am I going to get there? Then guide me along. It's, it's not just driving or navigating, you know, through space, it's a lot of things in life that I actually find are true. This, again, this is a quirk with you. This might be a challenge, and if somebody else would be a problem with me, it's just a quirk. So, you know, kind of treat it kindly. But um, I, a few years ago, I was having a lot of coaching on some things, and the, the person that was interacting with me, who was very insightful and helpful, said, you aren't very good with complexity. And I almost laughed. I just couldn't even believe that. It's like, what do you mean? I, I listened. And I processed. I, I had enough sense to keep my mouth shut, but it just didn't ring true at all. Usually people are buried by my complexity. I'm usually way ahead of everyone else on all of these things that are going on, and they, have str- they struggle to keep up with me. So I'm always trying to, trying to not be so complex, trying to be more simple. What do you mean? But then as I began to process it, I realized, oh, wait a minute. I get what they're saying, and they're absolutely right. That's a, that's a gold-plated insight. What they were saying, well, they just said you have a problem with complexity. What I understood is stuff coming at me from a thousand directions. I can't handle that. I have to get it all organized. I have to have this map in my head of reality. I have to have this structure. Once that's in place, I can run with the best. I can outpace a lot of people with here's the complexity, but when it's coming at me, oh, it is so hard to handle because I don't get it yet. I, I find that that shows up in all kinds of ways. David has really tried to help me be more kind. I'm not an unkind. I'm, in fact, I think I'm a pretty kind person. But sometimes I don't come across that way when I'm trying to get information. Right? I'm talking to somebody at school or some service person that's going to do X, Y, or Z. And I frame a question. I frame a specific question. And I know what I want to know. And they launch into eight other things, as if it's an excuse to tell me everything I didn't ask them. And I have to be very careful not to be curt or even rude in that moment. But I press, and it's like, back off. Just let them, let them speak. It's like, okay, I let them speak. i got to slow it down. And I, I realize why I do that. It's like, you're giving me all this stuff that I don't need. I have a map, and I need one piece. The puzzle is missing one piece. Can you give me that piece? If you give me that piece, the whole thing falls into place. And we don't have to spend a half an hour going back and forth. I just need two minutes. You tell me this, we're good. But I have to guard myself because in my quest to have that understanding, it is easy for me to 
not pay attention to the other person, maybe be a little bit abrupt or rude. Or my family and, and maybe some of you that are really close to me, uh, you're so gracious. Thank you for not always rolling your eyes at me um, because we'll have this long conversation and then I'll repeat things and I reframe it. And what I'm doing there, I realize, is I'm just I'm, I'm setting my map. Here's what we just talked about. Here's what it means. And you may go, I don't think that's what we said. And it was, but I'm reframing it. Or you may go, well, you just said all that. Why are you saying it now? It's like, it, it's because I'm, I'm establishing that map in my mind. Right? I find that for me, I have a very high value on understanding in order to navigate. And then I have a hard lean into that understanding to do life. Now, maybe some of you can relate to this. So let me ask you a question. Do you think there's ever a challenge with that makeup following Jesus who said, trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean into your own understanding? Oh, I don't like that. That's hard. Do you think that there's ever a time when it's difficult to follow a God who says, you know, it's not for you to know the day or the hour that the Father has established. It's for you to do your job. You think that's ever hard? Or how about this one? I was thinking about this verse, Jeremiah 9. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Now let me grab the rest of us. Some of you are already tracking with me going, yeah, understanding is a really important part of how I navigate life. Some of you are more chill about that. And it's more about the resource. As long as I know I have the resource base in place, whether it's financial or connectional or relational or whatever, then I can navigate, right? Don't let the wise man boast in his wisdom. Don't let the rich man boast in his riches. Or whether I can just power through it. Don't let the strong man boast in his strength. I think that pretty much captures the ways we try to navigate life. It says, don't boast in those things. Instead, let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I'm the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. In other words, it, the issue is not that you get life, it's that you get me. As we come to the passage we're looking at this morning in John chapter 16, that's the bullseye that Jesus is addressing. And he's addressing a very specific context for those people that is unrepeatable for us. But remember, our biggest question is not what Jesus is saying to the disciples, it's why did John write this down for a later generation? That's the horizon we want to look at because then we'll also go, oh, if there was a lesson for them, there's a lesson for me. And the lesson is something that carries forward in time. It is always the case that as the people of God, we are pretty happy when God tells us, here's what we're going to do, here's how it's going to happen, and we begin to get anxious when we don't know or we don't understand. Or it gets hard. And we're wondering, can we do this? Do I have the resource? Do I have the strength? Do I have the understanding? Wait a minute, this is all out of my control, and it's not going any way that I would expect. 
Gary gave us a gift last week, both in the message that he preached and in, in pointing out something to us. For you uh, nerdy types, like a word, a, t- a, a term that you can use in, in, in like a trivial game, you can know this word, uh, chiasm. Okay, this section of John is set up as a chiasm. And for those of you that don't like that, then ignore the word. The idea is that it's built to a focal point. Chapters 13 and 17 are a matching set that talk about much the same things and give much the same focus. Chapters 14 and 16 are about much the same thing with much the same focus. And then chapter 15, which he called the sweet spot for you trivia buffs, it's called the pivot technically, is like, there you go. This is where I really want you to focus. But along the way, I want you to pick up all of these key things. So chapter 14 and chapter 16 are a matching pair. Chapter 14 starts, Jesus has just said he's going to the Father, and then he starts chapter 14 by saying, don't be anxious. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in me. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Ah, We don't know where you're going. Yes, you do. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. We don't know how to get there. Yes, you do. Show us the Father. Please help us. You've seen me. You, You have what you need. Right? They are freaking out, and they've been doing that this whole time. He's taken them through some things, but now he's coming back around to say, let's deal with this anxiety. You guys are struggling. You guys are, you guys are troubled. You guys are worried because hard stuff's happening, and you don't get what God is doing, and you don't like what God is doing. Do you ever find yourself, when you're honest, in a place where you don't get what God is doing and or you don't like what God is doing? I think if you are seriously following Jesus and actually being honest, you have to answer yes. And if you didn't answer yes, you probably ought to back up and evaluate one of those two things. Either I'm not actually seriously following Jesus or I'm not actually being honest. Because he will take me places that I wouldn't have chosen. He'll take me through things that I'm not really excited about. And I need to learn to live life that is both honest and true. Those aren't the same things in this context. Honest is, here's what I'm struggling with. Here's how it feels. Here's what I like. I don't like this, God. And true is, you're sovereign. You're in control. You have a plan. I'm going to let true dictate my ultimate actions, but I got to deal with honest first. That's where the disciples are. So he's going to deal with their honest and bring a lot of true to it to help them. So let's just read this passage and unpack what they're experiencing, and then let's look at a couple of things that will be fruitful for us. So starting in verse 16, Jesus kind of picks up that thread. He says, a little while, and you will see me no longer, and again a little while, and you'll see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is it he says to us, a little while you'll see me, and not see me, a little while you'll see me, and because I'm going to the Father, which he said a few verses earlier in Gary's passage last week. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while, and you will not see me again a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, when when those words show up, John uses them multiple times. He's really putting a highlight on this. Truly, truly, I say to you, You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrow, but your sorrow will turn to joy. Okay, that truly, truly is saying this is super important, and what he's just said is there's going to be a crucifixion and resurrection. So the cross and the the empty tomb is always at the center of everything, and Jesus is just highlighting that. 
And then he gives them an image that's helpful to them. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. Right? If, if the struggle and suffering of childbirth were the primary thing on mom's wives, uh, mom's minds, wives' lives, uh, if it was the primary thing, we would all live in single child house, <laughs> households, right? He'd say, but there's something else. And for all the pain, all the struggle, all the months of, oh, that hurts, and I got to go to the bathroom again, and I don't feel good, and, and then the pain of delivery itself. There's this incredible joy because a child has been born, and that recontextualizes everything, and it makes a huge difference. He's saying, that's what's happening, only we're not talking about a baby. We're talking about the messianic age. God actually uses that image in the Old Testament. This is what's going to come. All of this language in a little while, in the hour, just a short time, the birth of a baby, those are all things that are picked up throughout the Old Testament saying there's this big shift coming. And Jesus is saying, we're right on top of that. We're right on top of that shift. And it's going to be painful. It's going to be hard. It's going to hurt. You're going to weep. And other people are going to be excited because they think I'm annoying and they want to get rid of me. But it's going to reverse. And then that pain and sorrow is going to shift just like for a mom when the baby is placed into her arms. So let's keep going. Verse 22. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice. No one will take your joy from you. In that day you'll ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. I come from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, now we get it. Let me stop and say, first off, we're going to see they don't get it at all, but let's make sure we get it. So here's what he's saying. Everything's shifting. Everything's shifting, and and prior to this moment, I have been talking kind of in puzzles, and now I'm talking more plainly, but it's still going to feel like a puzzle because you can't understand everything yet. But everything's shifting, including how you relate to God and to me. So I'm not going to, you don't have to, we ask in Jesus' name still, right? We have access to the Father through Jesus, but it's different. They didn't have access or connection with the Father. They had connection with Jesus, After the cross and the resurrection, that shifted. So there's access to God, Father, Son, and Spirit that is, in a sense, mediated by the Spirit, made possible by the Son. But he's saying that shifts. It's no longer you tell me something, then I'll go talk to the Father, and I'll come back. It's like, no, you come to the Father and to me. We're both listening. We're both going to be answering your prayers. You have this new relationship. This is what's coming. The language is a little bit confusing, because of the setting that they're in, but that's what he's saying. Everything's shifting right now. And they go, oh, cool, we're good. Verse 29, ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figures of speech. 
Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. That's why we believe that you came from God. It sounds so great and so pious and immediately says, really? Really? Do you now believe? No, you guys still don't get it. Even when you think you get it, you, you don't get it. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father's with me. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace in the world. You will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So let's kind of summarize where they are and then begin to draw some things, why John wrote it for the audience he wrote it for and why it would matter for us. They're on the eve of the crucifixion. They finished the Last Supper, the foot washing. It's called the Upper Room Discourse. These are literally the last teaching words Jesus gives them before he's attacked and taken to the cross in John. Now, there's more words that go between them, but we don't try to guess what those are because John has a message. And so for John, this is it. I want you to end here. Chapter 17 has a lot of words to Jesus, and they're all directed to the Father. It's that incredible prayer. So these are the last teaching words. These are the last encouragements. These are the last exhortations before it all starts to really happen. And he's saying, look, it's all shifting. You have a new access to God through me. Prayer is going to be a different reality because now you have a relationship to God through me. You've never had to ask anything like you're going to be asking, and you've never been able to ask anything like you've been asking, but now you'll, you'll ask and you will get it because you're in line with God, and he's doing this new thing in you and through you and for you, and I want you to not freak out, not freak out, right? You ever have, you know, like a project that you start and it, it goes backwards, like way backwards before it can go forward, and you look at it and go, what have I done? I've ruined everything. It's like, this is that moment. It's like, no, this is actually forward progress. Me dying is actually the right thing. You struggling with this is actually the right thing. Don't freak out. It's okay. In fact, you are gonna freak out, and that's okay too. I've got you. You're gonna fail, but I won't. And don't forget, I've overcome the world. Even though you have a lot of heard things, I've overcome the world. Two weeks ago when I was preaching, we focused on persecution. This passage broadens it out. It would certainly include persecution, but it's tribulation, hard things. Hard things because you aren't lined up with the world. Hard things because the world itself is broken. That's just part of life. Don't freak out. I've got this. And here's how it's all changing. And understand that with the work I'm going to do in my death and resurrection, that is the seminal moment when everything shifts. Now, that's what he's telling the original apostles who are sitting there in the room. John is now writing this down 60 years or so later. Those apostles are all dead except for him. They've all been executed except for him. The emperor who's on the throne is beginning to really heat up persecution. In fact, he's already, if we have our timing of John right, he's already boiled John in oil, and it didn't work. The people John is writing to are experiencing hardship. They're experiencing difficulty. They're experiencing pain. They're experiencing struggle in an extraordinary way, and it's going to get worse. 
And so he's reminding them, here's what Jesus said right before he went to the cross. He said, it's going to be hard. There's going to be times that it's not working the way you want. Don't freak out. I've got this. I'm doing something extraordinary here. They don't get what God is doing, and they don't like what God is doing, and so they get anxious and start freaking out. When I don't get what God is doing, and I don't like what God is doing, what do I do? That's really what he's wanting us to do. He's wanting us to deal with that. And I want to point out a couple of things um, about these disciples that they would have keyed into, and then I want to give us three responses that can be helpful. So the first thing about the disciples here that is helpful for us to just kind of meditate on, uh, first, part of the problem that they're experiencing is they're, they're living the strain of in-between lives. There's a strain on an in-between life, right? They're in the upper room, heading out to the garden, Everything's going to start unfolding. All that's been prepared is now completed, and, and then comes the cross, then comes the resurrection, then comes the ascension and the gift of the Spirit. That's forward from them. So the work that they were looking at before, is it's done, and now there's this new reality coming, and they're kind of in that middle point. And that's a really stressful place to be in the in-between zone. And so he's trying to help them with that. Now, as John writes that, he writes that to people who, like us, are living the in-between life. Our life is in between what Jesus has begun and what he will complete. And there's a lot of strain that comes with that. Because there's a lot of things that should be different, can be different, kind of are different, and totally aren't different, all at the same time. And we've got to navigate that. It's like this world's broken, and I'm broken, and yet I'm fixed, and I'm being fixed, and yet I still struggle. And ah, and why is this going that way instead of this way? God, I don't understand what you're doing. I don't like what you're doing. This isn't unfolding the way I would write the script, but I know you're working. I know you've already already accomplished. You've You've already conquered sin, death, and Satan, and everything is now just a matter of time and outworking, but that outworking is painful and challenging. They're living in between lives. That's tough for us. I mean, look at some of the words in this passage that remind us of that. He says, a little while, you will not see me, then you will see me. Giving birth that day until now, the hour is coming. I don't say you ask the father, you'll ask the father, I'll ask the father on your behalf. There's a new relationship. All of these are things that say there's this massive turning of the page of history that they're right in the middle of. Everything's shifting. For us, everything has shifted, and yet it's not completed. So the readers could relate. Even though the specifics of the details are a little bit different, they can relate. Jesus is saying, I'm going to be away from you personally for a while. Well, he's away from me personally for a while, too. I have the advantage they didn't that he talked about. He says, better if I go away so that the Spirit can come. So I have the Spirit, wonderful, but I don't see Jesus face to face, and everything's not made perfect. The world isn't fixed, and I still struggle. How do I do that in partnership with God and filled with joy? This passage talks about, I want you to be joyful. I want you to, you know, have joy and peace. That's kind of hard to do sometimes in that stretched in the in-between world. He highlights the uh, shift in one other way. 
In chapter 14, verse 1, he says to them, don't be anxious. Why are they anxious? Because he's just said, I'm going away to the Father. In verse 18 of chapter 14, he says, but I'm not leaving you as orphans. In other words, I'm not going to abandon you. That's why they're upset. That's why they're afraid. That's why they're struggling. He says, I'm not going to abandon you, but chapter 16, verse, what is it, verse 32, I'm not going to abandon you, but you're going to abandon me. The thing you're actually afraid of is what you're going to do. But don't worry. Don't worry. I've got that too. I've overcome the world. Did you notice in this passage too, these are the last words John records for us before everything starts to unfold for the crucifixion, right? These are the last words of teaching and exhortation. Next chapter is a prayer. Pain and suffering and struggle are the penultimate word. The final word, I have overcome. That's part of the living in between. Some of that almost final, that penultimate stuff is just getting all over my life and making a mess of it, and yet there's this ultimate reality that I'm trying to live in light of. That's what he's calling them to. That's what he's pointing them to. They're living that strain. Here's another thing that I think is helpful for us to look at in their lives is they don't get it. You know, verse 30, 31, oh, we get it. He's like, you don't, no, you don't. You haven't a clue. You're going to run away like crazy, terrified people. You don't get it. We thought we got it. You didn't. And as key as they can't get it. They can't get it yet. First, they don't have the spirit, which we have the advantage. We do have the spirit. So that's helpful. That gives us a leg up. But the original audience and us should also be going, but there's a whole lot of things. There's a whole lot of things God does that we still, even, even listening to the spirit, are difficult for us to get going forward. When does this stuff become clear? Oh, now I get it. After the fact. After he's crucified, resurrected, teaching them, ascending into heaven, and the Holy Spirit comes on Pentecost, and they go, oh, now I get it. That's important for us to recognize. There are things God's doing with them that they cannot get going forward. And it's true for us, too. Even with the advantage of the Spirit, which is a huge advantage, there are still things about how God is working that we cannot really well discern until after the fact, and sometimes well after the fact. And if I get stuck in, I got to have my map of what is, what's next and how this is going to work before I let you do the turn by turn, then I'm just stuck because I will never get it. Some things I may never get because God may choose not to reveal them, but there's a lot of things I'll get way after the fact. I have a friend who went through an extraordinarily difficult time who kept telling me during this season that he was so grateful for an even more painful time he had earlier in his career. It's like, oh, that was really, I mean, this is hard and people are not kind and so, but I had people attacking me. I had a terrible blah, 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 blah. All the tough stuff that was happening and he was grateful for it. When he went through it, he wasn't grateful for it. He almost quit, hated it. He said, but you know what? God used that. God used that to grow me, to shape my character, to prepare me for this. And this is, I can do this. I can do this. This is God's calling for my life and it's hard, but I can do this. He only saw that looking back through 10, 15 years. Because in the moment, it was not good. It was not pleasant, right? The disciples don't get it and they really can't. And there's times that I don't get it and I really 
can't. So what about when I don't get what God is doing and I don't like what God is doing? That's a reality that I'm going to face again and again. And I need to remember a couple things. One is uh, God doesn't, he doesn't submit proposals. He just sets the course. He doesn't come to me and say, you know, I was kind of thinking we might. <laughs> he doesn't do that. Like, I'm God, here's what's happening. Um, he doesn't submit proposals. And, and I, can, I can try to negotiate, and it's not, it doesn't matter. He's sovereign, right? I could go down to the U.S. bank building and jump off of the 73rd floor and spend however many 16 feet per second per second is falling that 1,000 plus feet negotiating with gravity. It's always going to end the same way. That's just dumb. God does not submit proposals. He sets the course. And so part of, part of what he's doing for his disciples is going, yeah, this is hard. This is hard. But can you imagine, can you imagine what it would have been if, if he had negotiated with them? Okay, I won't leave. Uh, can you pass the bread? We'll just sit here for a little bit longer. Like, I'm not going to die on a cross. Yeah, the rest of the world can literally go to hell. In fact, for that matter, so can you, because I will never make right what needs to be made right. God, does, God doesn't negotiate. He doesn't negotiate with me. He doesn't negotiate with them, right? And he's not asking me to trust his plan. He's asking me to trust him. So when the plan is confusing or I just don't like it, well, honest, right? Honest matters. I got to process that, but I got to come to true. True is, I don't have to trust the plan. I have to trust him. He's got this. He's got this. And he's not trying to wreck you. He's committed to rescue you, right? He's not trying to ruin my life. He's trying to redeem it. So he is trustworthy. But it's important to remember Daniel, who's so cool because he survived in the lion's den, was in the lion's den. That was not a fun moment. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who survived the fiery furnace, were thrown into the furnace. I was listening to somebody this week. Psalm 23, the point they drew out that really is, is pretty important to draw out Right? It's one of our favorite psalms for all kinds of settings. It says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Not you, you slew all my enemies, you destroyed them, and now there's this table in this beautiful meadow with you and heaven and angels, and that's where the table is. It's like, no, the table is right in the middle of the war. But I got you. So Jesus... tells them, look, I know there's a strain of living this in-between world, and you're not going to get it fully on the front end, but you've got to trust me. Now, here's three thoughts that I think will be helpful, which really substantially root in verse 33. So let me read verse 33 again. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Here's three, three maybe principles that we can try to cultivate and pray into our lives. The first one 
because I have to deal with this issue. I have to learn to follow a crucified Savior and follow a risen Savior. That sounds cliche, but it's actually, I think, profound. Because I think the way we often follow Jesus is we follow a good moral guy and a teacher and kind of the whole um, theological liberal viewpoint. We don't buy the viewpoint, but we kind of live out that reality. And then we take kind of this reductionistic approach to the good solid evangelical theology, and Jesus is kind of the mechanism by which we've been made right from God, but we bypass the person of Christ who was crucified, who suffered, who was rejected, who was shamed. I follow him. I guess it could be hard sometimes. And yet who rose again and conquered sin and death and Satan and changed reality. I follow him. Everything's different. I don't need that muddy middle I need to grab the two poles. The current of my life flows between those two poles of a crucified Savior and a resurrected Savior, one who suffered because the world is a broken mess, and so am I, and one who has conquered everything and is making it all right and offers me relationship and power. There's that, that dynamic that's supposed to drive my life. And here's what Jesus says in verse 33. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Well, I get some peace from this and some more agitation. You're not saying it's going to be easy. Yeah, but understand more deeply. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. This is before the crucifixion. For you nerdy people that like another like, little term you can throw out in conversation somewhere. Here's the word, proleptic. Proleptic. Jesus is saying something proleptic here. He's saying something that hasn't yet happened that is so certain that he's treating it like it's happened. I have overcome the world. And there's a dimension there that's really helpful because I am living in this tension point between there's a crucified Savior and there's a resurrection Savior. I am living in the already and the not yet, and I have to live a proleptic life. There are things that are true ultimately that have to bleed back into this moment And I have to live in light of those as if they are true and fully accomplished, even though my experience has taken a little while to catch up. Jesus says, I have overcome the world. They're they're in a room by themselves. There's there's 12 guys there, and pretty soon there's going to be one, and he's going to be hanging on a cross. One will kind of come in and out of the picture. He's the one that's going to write the story, and the other 10 are going to be gone. One's already left the room to betray him. This is not exactly a moment of victory, or it wouldn't seem as such. And yet he says, I've overcome the world. Not just the Sadducees and the Pharisees, but the world. I've overcome the world system. The one that's ruled by Satan. He's talked about that several times already in the book of John. I've overcome that. So I want you to learn to live with that. Live always looking over the shoulder of this moment to what's behind it. You may not be able to discern that fully. You won't be able to discern that fully. But you can discern enough to say this moment has a context. And that context is the sovereign, all-powerful, good God. I don't understand, and I don't even like this moment. And I don't have to trust his plan because I trust him. And I'm going to draw on his strength. I think Jesus says that's a good thing. Second thing, 
Uh, more explicitly, he says to them, uh, what is this? this? I think this is actually the verse prior, right? No, verse 33 still. Take heart or take courage. It really shows up only a few times in the New Testament. Super common in the Old Testament. Once it shows up when they're out on the sea and everything's going crazy and Jesus walks across the water to them and they freak out because that's terrifying and he says, take courage, it's I. And when they recognize him in the situation, Peter says, hey, can I do that? Can I jump out of this boat and walk on the water too? Another time is when Paul is on, well, he's on trial for his life. He's been captured in Jerusalem, and in the first capture, they are literally beating him to death. It says when the Roman soldiers come to rescue him, they stop beating him. They are trying to kill him. Then as they're leaving, he talks to him two different times. Both of those times, violence breaks out. At one point, these soldiers lift him up over their heads to carry him through the crowd. These are hardened soldiers. This isn't some little um, group that kind of lives a quiet life in a peaceful corner of the world and saying, oh, I think they may tear him limb from limb. These are battle-hardened soldiers. They're going, this crowd is literally going to rip this guy apart, lift him up. Right? That's Paul's experience. It's terrifying. And in that context, Jesus appears to him and says, take courage. I want you to know you're going to Rome and you will proclaim, right? And he recognizes Jesus and he moves out with that. One of the principles that's really helpful is when I have this, I don't like this, I don't understand this, this is hard moments, to look for where's Jesus in this and take courage and then move out, right? I can't just stop. A number of years ago, one of the guys who died on Mount Everest they actually got a satellite phone connection as he's just barely hanging on. Talked to his wife. She tried to walk him, talk him down the mountain. She said, okay, can you take another step? Can you take another step? Can you take another step? And what she didn't realize is he was too far gone. And all the time he's saying, yes, I can do that. Yes, he was just laying there waiting to die. Sometimes we feel like we can't go on. And we're just laying there waiting to die. And this guy's wife all the way out in the world didn't understand. But she's not the one saying, get up, take courage, and walk forward. Jesus is. And he does understand. And even if I feel like I can't, I absolutely can. Because he will resource me. And that's the last principle here. Do life in Christ. All of this is impossible for me. It's all impossible for you. But I have this relationship with Jesus that's now solidified. That's why John 15 is at the center of this section. All of these things matter, but if you miss the fact that you've got to abide and the word's got to abide and you've got to be fruitful, then, then you miss out. It's got to be a union with me, right? What does he say? In the world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Prior to that, in me you have peace. In me. In the world, you're still having trouble. So how do you live in me? He's the one who overcome the world. I, the most important thing for me to do is cultivate my connection with God. My intimacy with God. There are, can do this. But I do this in the power of the Spirit. He talks about prayer. Pray more than I should run around. Make sure I'm connecting with him in his word. 
saturated by that, seeking him. It doesn't say it's going to be easy, and that's not something, there's not a magic bullet. I can give you four steps, and here's how you do it. It's something you have to cultivate and grow in over a lifetime. But I have to keep coming back to that. How do I connect with God in this moment? How do I lean into Jesus in this moment? That's the foundation. In the world, you will have trouble. Don't worry. I have overcome the world. In me, you will have peace. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your grace and your mercy and the peace that you offer us. Thank you that we are yours. We're bought with a price. We don't have to solve our lives. They're not a puzzle for us to solve or a challenge for us to overcome. They're a journey that we share with you. Thank you that when you call us to things that are impossible, they're not. They may seem that, but you know, and you're ready to provide. Lord, would you help us in those moments, which sometimes are pretty often, that we don't understand what you're doing and we don't like what you're doing, help us to trust you anyway. Lord, you know where each of us is. You know what we need. You know where our world needs. You know what this church needs. Lord, we need this so much. May our strength come from you in the relationship that fundamentally shifted because of what you did at the cross and at the empty tomb and on Pentecost and what you're doing moment by moment in our lives. Lord, as we take this offering, would you use these gifts for your purposes to bless people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.